Chapter Thirty, Against Overwhelming Odds, of the Lost City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost City, by Joseph E. Badger Jr. Chapter Thirty, Against Overwhelming Odds. This double appearance, for Ixley kept fair pace with his hot-headed white brother, caused no little stir, and added considerable to the partial bewilderment which had fallen over that audience. Prince Hua shouted forth savage threats, but he, as well as the papa, was fairly demoralized for the moment by the totally unexpected failure of their carefully laid schemes. Seeing his chance, Azotl bade his men escort the sun-children from the Hall of Sacrifice back to their own abiding place, barely noticing his son, and paying no heed at all to the disguised pale-face. With spears ready for stroke or parry as occasion might demand, the guard faced about and slowly moved away from that great stone of sacrifice, rigid of face, cool of nerve, ready to die if must be, yet never once thinking of disobedience to orders or of playing cur to save life. Almost involuntarily the crowd parted before that measured advance, giving way until a fair pathway lay open, along which the bodyguard moved with neither haste nor hesitation, outwardly ignorant of the fact that ugly cries and dangerous gestures were coming thicker and faster their way. Scores of other voices caught up the fierce cry given by the head-priest, and now the temple was ringing throughout with demands that the false sun-children should pay full penalty, should be hailed to the sacrificial stone, there to purge themselves without further delay. Others showed an inclination to favor the descendants of Quetzal, and thus the widely conflicting shouts and cries formed a medley which was fairly deafening. For one of his fierce temper, the Red Heron showed a marvellous coolness throughout that perilous retreat, and never more than during the first few seconds. Then a single injudicious word or too hasty movement might easily have precipitated a fight, where the vast audience would surely have brought disaster, whether the majority so willed or not. Holding his men well in hand, moving only as rapidly as prudence justified, yet losing neither time nor ground, where both were of such vital importance, Azotl forced a passage from the great hall of sacrifice, down to the level, then out into the open air, where one could see and fight if needs be. Through all this, Bruno Gillespie held the position he had taken— one hand gripping tightly his maquahuitl, but placing his main dependence upon the revolver which nestled conveniently within the folds of his sash, one nervous forefinger touching the curved trigger. He could not help seeing that the danger was great. He felt certain that they could not retreat much farther without coming to blows, when the odds would be overwhelmingly against them. Yet never for an instant did he regret having taken such a decided step. Not for one moment did he give thought to himself. Almost within reach of his hand, if extended at the length of his arm, moved the fair maiden whose face and form had made so deep an impression upon his mind and his heart. She was in peril. She needed aid. That was enough. Then the briefly stunned Tlacopa, 
rushed forth from his desecrated temple, wildly flourishing his arms, furiously denouncing both the sun-children and their bodyguard, thundering forth the curses of all the gods upon the heads of those who refrained from arresting the evil ones. "'The mighty mother of gods calls for her own! Seize them! Strike down thy impious dogs who dare attempt to defraud our mother! Seize them! To the sacrifice! To the sacrifice!' Equally loud of voice, the prince, Pua, came leaping down to the sandy level, urging his people to the assault, offering almost fabulous sums as reward for the brave Aztec, whose arm should lay yonder traitorous red heron prone in the dust. The crisis came, and the dogs of war were let loose. An arrow whizzed narrowly past the feathered helmet worn by the captain of the guards. A stone came humming out of sling, to be deftly dashed aside by Azotl's shield, ere it could fairly smite that gold-crowned head, as outwardly calm and composed. Victo aided her trembling daughter on towards the temple of the sun-god, where alone they might look for safety. But would it be found even there? No, for at savage howl from lips of the high priest, a strong force of armed redskins took up position at the Teocalili, blocking each one of the four flights of stone steps in order to intercept the bodyguard, while still closer pressed the yelling, screeching, frantic heathen of both sexes and all ages. Azotl saw how he had been flanked, but made no sign, even while slightly turning course for another temple at less distance, a single word being sufficient to post his true hearts. So far not a single blow had been struck by the retreating party, although great provocation had been given them. More than one of their number was bleeding, yet all were afoot, and still capable of holding ranks. Then— Bravest of the brave, a man among men in spite of his tender years, Ixley laid down his life in defense of his idolized Victo. From one of that maddened rabble came a heavy stone, flung with all the power of a sinewy arm and great sling. Smitten fairly between the eyes, the poor lad's skull was crushed, as a giant hand might mash an eggshell. One gasping sigh, then the lad sunk to earth, dead ere he could fairly measure his length thereupon. For a single instant Azotl seemed as one stupefied, but then an awful uproar burst from his laboring lungs, and he hurled his heavy javelin full at yonder murderer, winging it with a father's curses. Swift flew the dart, but fully as quickly sank that varlet, the head of the spear, scraping his skull, to pass on and smite with death, one even more evil, if that might be. Full in the throat, the Lakopa was stricken, the broad blade of copper tearing a passage through, and the shaft following after for the greater portion of its length. Unable to scream, though his visage was hideously distorted by mingled fear and agony, the high priest caught the wood in both hands, even as he reeled to partly turn, then fall upon his face, dead, thrice dead. With a wild thrill of grief and horror, Bruno Gillespie saw his red brother reel in cruel death, and, for the moment heedless of his own peril which surely was doubled thereby, he sprang that way to stoop and catch that quivering shape in his eager hands. Too late, save to show his comradeship, 
that heavy stone had only too surely performed its grim mission. Dead! Poor lad! Dead! While seeking to save another! With a fierce cry of angry mourning, Bruno lifted the mutilated corpse in his arms, trying to toss it over a shoulder to bear away from risk of trampling under the heedless feet of the yelling heathen, but it was not to be. Another stone smote his arm near the elbow, breaking no bone, yet so benumbing the member as to temporarily disable it, causing that precious burden to drop to earth once more. Then came an awful outcry from the people whom the sight of their high priest, reeling in death, had, for a few fleeting seconds, fairly stupefied. Cries which meant much to the living, and before which even that band of true hearts receded with slightly quickened pace. With the others fell back Bruno, leaving his hand wood lying beside the lifeless corpse of his red-skinned brother at heart, but drawing forth the weapon which he knew so much better how to use. The fierce lust of vengeance now seized upon him, heart and brain. He shouted forth grim defiance to that howling crew, and as the deadly missiles came in thickening clouds carrying death and wounds to the bodyguard of the sun-children, he opened fire, shooting to kill. Entirely without firearms themselves, and in all probability ignorant of such an instrument of destruction, this might have produced a far more beneficial result under other circumstances. As it was now, few, if any, took heed of what they could not hear above that awful tumult, and those who felt the boring lead never rose up to give their testimony. Closer crowded the superstition-ridden heathen, showering missiles of all descriptions upon the bodyguard, confounding all with the one to whose javelin their head-priest owed his death, only to recoil once more, in fierce awe, as another victim of high rank paid forfeit his life for the death of Ixley, sole offspring of Azotol, the Red Heron. End of chapter 30